Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks on remote assignment. The, yes, that's right. That's why Connor sounds a little remote, because he's on remote assignment. But uh, I have a feeling your views are going to come through loudly and clearly anyway, because, of course, the big decision facing America, Donald Trump, Democrats, Republicans, is uh, what to do about the vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court. So we're going to talk about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy. We're going to talk about Trump's decision to go for it. Uh, We're going to talk about some of the candidates that have been mentioned. Just a breaking news today, he is planning on uh, giving the name of the female uh, prospective justice this coming Friday or Saturday. Uh, We'll talk about whether the Democrats uh, are going to take it lying down, or maybe we're going to end up seeing 13 justices instead of nine down the road. And uh, we're going to talk about the political impact in terms of this whole intergalactic kerfuffle uh, on the presidential election. So, Connor, uh, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, seen as a real trailblazer. Uh, She uh, started out in her legal career founding the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. She brought test cases to challenge laws regarding sex discrimination. And really, she was thought of it in the same uh, way that people think of uh, Thurgood Marshall in terms of uh, being a trailblazer uh, for racial rights in terms of discrimination, segregation, and so on. She argued six cases before Supreme Court won five of them. Uh, President Carter put her on the D.C. Circuit in 1980. Uh, And then, of course, uh, famously, Bill Clinton in 1993 made her the second woman in history to be on the U.S. Supreme Court after Sandra Day O'Connor from the 80s, courtesy of President Reagan. Uh, And she has really made her mark. Uh, From your perspective, Connor, uh, how do you look back on uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy? Similarly, my generation uh, regards her with something of a heroic or mythical status. I mean, she is, uh, by by many metrics, the most liberal member of the Supreme Court. And, uh, of course, the uh, millennial uh, and Zoomer generation have embraced her uh, as a result. I mean, she's responsible for uh, a lot of uh, what what people would consider a landmark or the seminal rights uh, gender uh, cases at the uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, she expanded the 14th uh, Amendment's uh, equal protection um, to uh, people who were discriminated on the basis of sex. And then she got a movie made uh, called On the Basis of Sex about her. I believe she had a second movie uh, made about her life as well. Um, but yeah, you can thank her uh, for a lot of the protections uh, that uh, people now enjoy uh, as a result of um, you know, a lack of gender discrimination, on, especially on the part of the government, things like uh, spousal benefits being paid out um, to men, uh, to husbands, just as they are paid out uh, to wives um, uh, for, uh, for military, uh, uh, military beneficiaries, um, and uh, you know, gender discrimination lawsuits now being possible because of her interpretation of the 14th Amendment. So she's a towering figure in Supreme Court history. She's going to have a massive, lasting impact um, 
and uh, because she is a, a Jewish, I, I suppose we're not supposed to say R.I.P., um, though it's hardly offensive to do so. It's it's uh, more more uh, accurate to say uh, to say may uh, her memory be a blessing, I suppose. So um, so uh, thank you, R.B.G., for all you've done. Uh, but yeah, now we're faced with uh, the the tough reality uh, that we are not allowed to take this sort of time um, and uh, and mourn. Uh, a woman who had a, a, an outsized impact. We have to think about the political implications of her vacancy instead of, unfortunately, uh, getting to uh, to celebrate uh, the life she she led. So we're left with this tough um, political situation um, where uh, we see the the naked exercise of power um, being cloaked behind um, a lot of uh, political posturing. Um, at this point, I mean a it's it's a topic that has come up again and again on this pod. Uh, you and I have talked about it, and you have pointed out rightly that uh, political uh, figures are the voters' champions, and voters generally care about winning over everything. They don't really care uh, about uh, accusations of hypocrisy. And um, if I had to put my money down, um, if Vegas was operating, I think Vegas is operating, but if Vegas was operating and I had to put my money down, um, I would put uh, every cent, uh, every cent I have on um, Mitch McConnell flexing his uh, uh, political power to the extent that it is possible uh, and making this happen uh, and actually putting a, a Republican butt in that seat. Um, regardless of what uh, what uh, John Roberts says, there are Republican judges and Democrat judges. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're going to flex that power while they still have it. I think you, you make a, a good point concerning, uh, well, certainly uh, we're, all the signals coming out of the White House and from Mitch McConnell are consistent with what you said. McConnell is going to push to uh, have a nominee before the Senate. The, the president is saying that he is going to, uh, to do that. Uh, one of the points you made, Connor, was interesting that uh, the attention so quickly moved from lauding her career to, you know, what are the political nitty-gritty realities? And I remember the same thing basically happened when Justice Antonin Scalia died in his sleep several years ago. Uh, yes, people talked about him for a bit, but very quickly the focus became, you know, what about the replacement and so on. Uh, just one more minute on, on her legacy she certainly deserves. Uh, it's interesting that she wrote some important majority decisions. In 1996, uh, she struck down the Virginia military in Institute's male-only admission policy, and she wrote many other opinions, but some of the uh, greatest attention came from her dissents, because she would get a lot of attention for actually reading her dissents or portions of them aloud in the Supreme Court, which generally isn't done, and it normally reflects the fact that the justice is really, really unhappy about what happened. And For example, 13 years ago in the Gonzalez case, the majority on the Supreme Court for the first time banned a specific abortion method. It was a partial birth abortion decision, late-term abortion, and they did not approve an exception for a woman's health. And she was so angry about it that she read her decision aloud. Uh, so you know, she uh, she really made her mark. Uh, in terms of, of politics, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the issue of, uh, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, you know, there are no Obama judges. Uh, her, her participation in sort of the political discussion actually feeds into that because everybody will remember the, the the fight a couple of years ago when President Trump stood up and complained that, oh, this is an Obama judge doing this. And normally the Supreme Court Chief Justice wouldn't take the bait. He wouldn't say anything. But he, he came out and said, you know, there aren't any Bush judges. There aren't any Obama judges. They're just good, hardworking federal judges. 
Well, then Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, made headlines when during the 2016 election, she told the New York Times, I really don't like the idea of Donald Trump being there. I think he's a faker. And then later she said, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that. She kind of backed off. But of course, a couple of weeks ago, she's quoted as having told her granddaughter, you know, my one fervent hope is that uh, when I leave the court, I will be replaced by someone other than the current president. So she kind of put her toe in the water. I wonder if, if her comments undermine Chief Justice Roberts' notion that there's no such thing as a politically motivated judge, instead uh, I mean, just hardworking judges. Do. I hear you, but reality undermines Chief Justice Roberts' comments that there's no such thing as a politically motivated judge. The reason that Mitch McConnell is so frantic and so desperate to exercise the political power he has, and that the Democrats are frantic to exercise the political power that they have when they have it, uh, is that there are, in fact, uh, judges who have ideological perspectives. It's silly to imagine that they don't, and it's actually cover for the ideological uh, you know, leanings of judges to say that they don't have them. I mean, if, if, if we don't live in a world where you can have referees uh, or, or umpires at a baseball game who just aren't fans of a certain baseball team. It's easy, and it's easy to not be a fan of baseball, the sport, or it's easy to not be a fan of a baseball team. You can still live in a city and not care about you live in Los Angeles and not care about the Dodgers, right? But you can't live in America and not care about politics if you're a smart person, and especially if you're a person who is engaged in a career which is, you know, specifically the law and the administration of the law and the interpretation of the law. All of these are political concepts. And to say that somebody can just be, well, I'm apolitical is nonsense. The personal is political. We've known this for our, you know, the, our, the entire history of, of American politics. And anybody who says I'm apolitical is just saying I am so privileged that politics doesn't affect me. And guess what? That's a political position to take. Nobody can, you know, nobody can take that position with a straight face once they've examined the the privilege that they hold to not have to care that you know jackbooted thugs are going to kick down their door and deport their family members. That is privilege. They, they don't have to care that you know the taxes that the government collects uh, are are so brutal uh, that they you know affect their ability to make a, a, a livelihood. That's privilege. I mean, anybody who says I'm not political or I don't have political opinions or politics doesn't affect me and mine is speaking from an enormous position of power. And they should respect that that itself is a political statement. When we come back, we are going to talk about the the politics of the situation, Trump's decision to go for it before the election. But even from an undisclosed location remotely, Connor can urge you to rate and subscribe to our yeah, podcast. Add, add to your podcast uh, source of choice, whether that's Stitcher or Spotify or Podcast Addict or Apple Podcast, of course, is probably most people's source. And, uh, you know, find our Apple Podcast page, the one where you found this podcast. Click subscribe. Uh, make sure you get every episode. And heck, if you've got the time, uh, five seconds, leave us a little review talking about how great we are. Uh, it really helps us out. We'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Silk Oaks. 
So, Connor, uh, the issue of political hypocrisy has arisen here. I, I wonder if both sides are kind of tarred with this brush because, of course, Mitch McConnell back in 2016 said, well, we're not going to even have a vote on America Garland because, doggone it, it's an election year. And so we're going to press ahead with the election and let the, the new president uh, make the decision. And the Democrats were, of course, uh, furious about this. They still have not gotten over it. And, and so now the opposite situation occurs and Mitch McConnell says, well, here's the difference. Back then, of course, there was a lot of division. The Senate was controlled by the uh, Republicans. The White House was controlled by the Democrats. But now uh, everybody's on the same page, the Senate and the White House, and, and that's a reason to press ahead. And in fact, 21 out of 25 times, uh, nominees uh, put up during an election year have been confirmed throughout U.S. history. Uh, do you think the, the Democrats uh, are going to benefit from the charge of hypocrisy or, or, the, or the voters just going to say, yeah, we, we hear this kind of stuff from both sides. We hear the same sound bites, depending on who's in the White House. I told you so, or I called it, but I told you so, and I called it. There's no reason why, there's no, there's no, you know, uh, 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 hypocrisy reason uh, or personal integrity reason that Mitch McConnell would refuse or decline to flex the political power that he has in the Senate to put yet another Republican appointee, appointee uh, on the Supreme Court. Uh, hypocrisy does not matter, and this com- this this argument of, about both sides is that Republicans would do that, Democrats would do the same is extremely powerful. And you know what? They're absolutely right. But Democrats would do this in the position that the Republicans are in. The problem and the reason that there's hypocrisy is because it's not it's not an issue for voters to uh, to see that politicians flex their political power when they have the right to do so. They are our champions. People want them to flex in order to get the right person on the Supreme Court instead of somebody like Gorsuch or Kavanaugh or God forbid, God forbid, Amy Barrett. Uh, or, or whoever else uh, that Trump is going to put on next. The problem is the abuse of norms. It's the argument made in 2016 that says, well, we've got rules and we've got norms, and both of those things come into play here. We care about both of them. We care about the decorum of the Senate, and we care about the respectability of the politics, and we care about the office and what it means. We care about uh, the, a mandate from the voters, and we care about X, Y, Z, whatever excuse you want to make up, and that Mitch McConnell used to justify why he wasn't giving Merrick Garland or any other uh, Obama appointee at all um, a, a, a seat, or rather a, a, a chance, a vote in the Senate. That is the problem. To, to, to turn around and then flip-flop uh, in your in your excuse-making is what is going to enrage many uh, people on the other side of the political spectrum. And, and when I say other side, I do mean those mythical, uh, you know, Obama-Trump, Voters, the mythical, uh, maybe uh, Democrat, maybe Republican, uh, you know, Ken Bones of the world who just tiptoe back and forth across the center line. If they, those people exist, and to the extent those people exist, those people may well care about hypocrisy. And while it might not manifest in the ultra-ideological presidential race, it might not change the outcome of who somebody's voting for in terms of the, the, the president, it might change people uh, people's minds in the uh, elections of their senators. We might see people um, who, uh, you know, senators who have tough re-election bids and are facing down dangerous incumbents who are now better funded because of the uh, energizing effect uh, of, a, of a Supreme Court seat being explicitly up for grabs, although 
uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat was always going to be up for grabs. She was going to uh, presumably retire with all available speed as soon as Biden took uh, took office, um, or maybe she, you know, handles the, the the spring uh, calendar and then leave. But this this definitely has energized people, and you're looking at uh, specifically. We need four, the mechanics of it, we need four Republican senators to say no to Mitch McConnell. And uh, if, assuming all Democrats are on, on the same page, which they will be, you need four defectors. Those four defectors are most likely to be, firstly, uh, two women, Susan Collins uh, and Lisa Murkowski. Susan Collins from Maine. Uh, she's facing a tough Democratic uh, challenge. She's likely to lose her seat. And this uh, position, if she were to support um, uh uh, a Trump appointee to the Supreme Court uh, in in direct you know defiance of her uh, of the 2016 GOP position um, that uh, Merrick should not get a, a vote. She would you know Sarah Gideon, her Democratic challenger, would make you know a lot of hay out of that. Connor, not surprisingly, Susan Collins has come out and said that there should not be a vote on this until after the election. Right, and so has Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who has now very, very recently today, I believe, um, uh, come out and also said um, that uh, there should not be uh, a vote until after the election. Now, um, Murkowski has a little more flexibility. She's not facing re-election until 2022. So if she were to flip-flop on that, there'd be a lot of time for people to forget uh, what she had done and us to get two years into a Biden administration and two years into a Biden administration. Of course, there's going to be a lot more grumbling about, oh, boo-hoo, I didn't like how Biden did X, Y, or Z. And then people will forgive her um, for this flip-flopping thing, which will at that point be you know, far in the rearview mirror. Um, the third, remember, we need four uh, Republican senators here. So the third possibility um, that might be up for grabs that people talk about is Mitt Romney. Now, Mitt Romney wasn't in office when Gorsuch was confirmed, right? He wasn't around in 2016, uh, but he's, he's from Utah. Uh, so he doesn't have a direct uh, a, a vote or a position taken that he has to uh, defend from charges of hypocrisy. Uh, he's also so overwhelmingly popular in Utah that he's very likely uh, to always win re-election whenever he wants it. Um, so he's really not in a lot of danger. He can kind of do and say whatever he wants, largely, at least people think so. Uh, and finally, the least likely um, of the likelies uh, to actually oppose Mitch McConnell, stand up to Mitch McConnell uh, on principled grounds or strategic re-election grounds would be Cory Gardner of Colorado. I mean, he's up for re-election and he is facing a, 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 a real race. Uh, and so far in the last two days has dodged the question about uh, whether he will support um, giving a vote to a Republican um, multiple times. So he's still uh, probably, uh, you know, either talking to the Republicans or has committed to the Republicans and is just not making it public yet because he's waiting for a strategically sound uh, time, maybe the heat uh, to have died down. People to have heard about Trump's appointees and heard, oh my gosh, it's a woman, uh, it's a woman of color, we're excited about that. And once they get excited about that, they will you know, have a, a, a less strong reaction to the idea that Corey would support uh, a, a specific nominee or uh, hearing any of Trump's nominees because, well, if the nominee is good enough, then maybe that'll change people's minds, right? So I think it's smart strategically for Corey to wait um, uh, because he is, like I said, up for uh, re-election. And plus, just being in this position of the most on the edge of the on the edge senators is a position of power. That places a lot of power uh, in your hands. And people like power. And remember, 
his his re-election campaign coming up, he's got to balance two things. One, people could be angry about the choices that he makes, the strategic decisions he makes, um, and they could you know push back on him for either abandoning the GOPs or, or GOPers or for flip-flopping if they're uh, left-leaning uh, Republican voters. Uh, but remember that power is sexy. So all that really matters is that he's in the spotlight, that he's getting headlines uh, with his name in them, and that people view him as a powerful senator because people want Mitch McConnell to be their senator. Kentucky is going to reelect Mitch McConnell. Sorry, Jamie Harrison. It's never, ever, 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 ever going to happen. I want you to win too. I want you to beat Mitch too. It's never, ever, ever going to happen because nobody looks at their super powerful champion. No one looks at the New York Yankees of the Senate and says, well, you keep winning the World Series, but you know what? I just don't like the way you're doing it, so I'm going to vote you out. No, people love power. Power is sexy. It's the only way that Mitch McConnell has ever been described as sexy, but it is what it is. People are going to actually support Cory Gardner because he's a flexible, could-go-back-and-forth guy. That means he can curry favor and promises from the Republicans, and if they reelect him, he can bring home the bacon because, of course, everybody's about how do we bring home the government bacon while, of course, when they flip around and say, well, we hate people who try to bring home the government bacon to their district. So that's our state, in this case, in Colorado. So that's the, that's the, the, the drama that's unfolding, and I don't know. Have you heard any other names bandied about besides Collins, Murkowski, Romney, and Gardner? Are there any possibilities of senators that might flip? No, I haven't. But it, to me, it's hard to believe that among all the Republicans, uh, given the level of controversy on this issue, that there wouldn't be one more that would flip it over and get off the 50 bubble down to 49. Hey, when we come back, I'm going to explain why it's possible Donald Trump doesn't really care who gets on the Supreme Court or how this turns out. Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Donald Oaks. So, Connor, here's my take on this. This is why maybe Donald Trump doesn't really care yeah, about this. Hear this one. Um, Donald Trump cares about getting reelected. You know, any of us yeah. would if, if we were in his position. And he's looking at this as, okay, what is going to change my chances? Because, you know, he... He's many things, but but he's smart enough to know that every single poll, including the polls of the swing states, say he is going down. He is going to lose. So he's got to change the dynamic. This Supreme Court uh, deal is a huge gift to him because yes. instead of everybody thinking about COVID, oh my gosh, did Donald Trump blow it? Is he responsible for many, many lives being lost? Or Donald Trump, his personality, his character, do we want him four years, more, four more years? Instead of those being the foci, the focus now is the Supreme Court. So automatically, I think that's good for him. So he's making a decision as to when to put a person up and when to have a vote based on the calculus of what's going to maximize his reelection chances. So I think he's probably deciding what maximizes my chances is that a, we have a vote before the election. The idea of energizing the base, I think, is critical here. And, and obviously, yeah. it's going to energize both sides. But when you think about it, how many more Democrats are really going to be rushing to the polls because of the Supreme Court issue than would rush to the polls anyway? Everybody left of center and a lot of people in the middle, they already hate Donald Trump. I mean, how many more people are going to do it? On the other hand, if you look at the great middle who's going to decide the election— there are a lot of people in there who feel very strongly about the hot-button issues, whether it's abortion or guns or prayer 
or immigration or Obamacare. And they know that the Supreme Court is the key to victory on all of those things that are so basic to their lives. And so that, I think, is going to result probably in energizing the, the conservative base more than the liberal. But again, I think it's all a political uh, computation by President Trump. And so McConnell's basically going to be doing his bidding. I think, actually, you're right. You, you bring up a very good point that McConnell and uh, and Trump are very much uh, uh, separate and apart in their um, motivations uh, about this election. McConnell would like Trump to, to win re-election. That would be better for him. But McConnell is perfectly happy to be in the major- in the minority and to be running around flexing the power of uh, the, the, ty- the tyranny of the minority in order to stymie any attempt by the Democrats to get legislation through, con- through Congress because the Senate is the cooling saucer, i.e. the boneyard where all legislation goes to die if they want it to die. It's incredibly hard. And to pass legislation, and that's why uh, there's so much talk, Democratic talk, about ending the filibuster. Right? This is uh, this is a situation where Mitch McConnell is happy to be in the minority. So Mitch McConnell's number one priority is getting a conservative justice on Supreme Court before the election, so that there's no or in the lame duck period, so that there's no danger uh, of the. Uh, of the Democrats getting that seat. And then if they lose the presidency, that's fine. They'll just get win the presidency back with Mitt Romney in 2024. They don't really care. So it, it, it's not a big deal for Mitt to, for Trump to lose. It is the end of the world for Trump to lose for Trump. And so it, I think the most advantageous politically uh, scenario, political scenario for Trump is actually that he puts up one or more candidates for the Supreme Court and then that those candidates get shot down. And if they, they somehow get shot down, if the, if they, they fall to political pressure, uh, like the senators move and to fall to political pressure, and then he gets to say to his base. Yeah, you see how important it is for you to turn out, right? What's that? It's so important for you to turn out, exactly. Exactly. It's so important for you to turn out. And these jerks, Democrats, aren't letting me do the right thing, which is still uh, fill a, a seat. Uh because when I'm the president, right, that's my job. I, I put up candidates as the president. So you've got to reelect me. So I think that is, uh, is, is a really interesting dichotomy of, of motivation and power uh, between those, sorry, motivation between those two powerful figures uh, of Trump and McConnell. The other thing that addresses, addresses your point directly um, about uh, whether this is you know, more exciting for the liberal versus the conservative base, I think I would, I would disagree somewhat. I would say that Biden, as a choice, appeals very strongly to the middle of the road. This is the safe return to normalcy. Nothing's really going to change. I don't support demonstrations in the street that turn violent. I don't want to actually do anything about police brutality. I'm not going to change anything. Don't worry. That uh, middle of the road voter uh, who might tip over to the Republican or might tip over to the, the Democrat, that person is appealed to directly by Biden. But I think... The, the thing that Biden doesn't do is excite and scare. And those two things in American politics are very closely related to one another. But guess what does scare the person who might tiptoe back and forth over the middle line? The idea that, that Roe v. Wade might get overturned and that abortion might become illegal. Guess what, America? Abortion is, Roe v. Wade is, is effectively meaningless in this country. There's not going to be a law that the outlaws bans abortion at the federal level. If Roe v. Wade gets overturned, 
we're going to go back to state-level control. States are going to decide it on a case-by-case basis. Guess what? In California, abortion is going to remain legal and available. And guess what? In Alabama, where it is functionally illegal right now, where there are effectively no providers that provide abortion and can provide abortion, that there are state laws that put a stranglehold on abortion and that force, you know, ridiculous restraints on clinics that try to perform uh, reproductive health services for women. It's effectively impossible to get a safe and legal abortion in a lot of states. It's going to remain that way. And even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, it would remain that way. Is that a tragedy? Yes, that's a tragedy. We need to protect Roe v. Wade and expand it because it recognizes that there is a fundamental right to privacy that includes uh, the right to abortion in this country. And the, the, the court has been shooting down laws uh, left and right that try to you know, pr- actually stake out a, a position protecting that right. But Biden can flex on this. Biden can say, I will be your champion and protect you from the overturn of Roe v. Wade because people don't actually understand the implications of Roe v. Wade and what would happen if it was overturned. And so this possibility of putting somebody like Amy Barrett or whatever her hyphenated name is, I can't ever remember it, on the Supreme Court, who is a, a Catholic and a member of a, a, a very strict Catholic sect and who's very much going to be pro-life, she's going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And heck, you know, she might have some crazy opinion that actually tries to outlaw abortion uh, and undo the expansion of the right of privacy that Roe v. Wade did. So yeah, maybe this could be the thing that excites and scares uh, Democratic voters. And the voters who are susceptible to excitement and fear might be the voter segment that is left out and that is, hasn't been persuaded by Biden. So I can see it as a big win for Biden uh, as well. Hey, the final issue on this about whether, you know, uh, Trump cares. Well, we can say that Trump doesn't, you know, care specifically about uh, having a Republican majority on the court. I think we can all remember Bush v. Gore. Not all. I'm sure there's some listener out there who's, who's young enough they don't remember Bush v. Gore. But Bush v. Gore, the Supreme Court handed the election to Bush. They said, stop counting votes. That, that doesn't matter. Uh, it's just too slow, and, and we've done it too many times, and we, we don't want to you know, wait around for the results. I'm John Roberts, Chief Justice. I'm going to 5-4 hand the election to George Bush Jr., uh, and he's the president now. Al Gore, you lose. So that is a very real possibility. Given that Trump is facing down a loss in every poll and is going to be looking for another long-shot victory like his long-shot victory against Hillary Clinton, he's going to contest the results of the election on day one, as he has said specifically he has, and his quote in, you know, in the media, his quote has been, we're going to rely on the federal judiciary to make sure that we have a result on election night, which is nonsense because, of course, you can't have a result on election night if you actually count absentee ballots, which are going to be massively more important than they have ever been in any other election in the history of the United States because of COVID and the the ideological split between the people who are afraid of COVID and thus voting absentee versus not afraid of COVID and not voting absentee is massively in favor of in-person votes being uh, tilted towards Trump. So, of course, Trump's plan and the Republican establishment's plan is to uh, challenge the results of the election on election night in the federal court system and to get a result that's in favor of Trump. And then Trump, of course, will fight it to the death and hope that the Supreme Court hands it to him. Well, how many Supreme Court justices did Trump uh, uh, choose and handpick for the court uh, one more uh, to make it uh, a solid majority, even if John Roberts wants to uh, wants to defect? Um, that would be an incredible boon to him. So, yeah, Trump cares about having uh, a Trump appointee 
on the court, one who was appointed to the court, I don't know, a week prior and cares deeply about returning that favor because everything in politics is about favors for Trump. So, Connor, we got three minutes left and I want to tee up uh, an issue that involves your crystal ball. Will the Democrats uh, create a 13 member Supreme Court? We got nine on the court, but it doesn't have to be nine. Democrats are saying, you know, if Trump does this and gets uh, one more justice and we win the presidency, guess what we're going to do? First, we're going to get rid of the filibuster. They already got rid of the filibuster for not Supreme Court, but uh, appellate and trial court judges uh, in the federal system. And Harry Reid did that because he wanted to get a lot more judges on the D.C. Circuit, and it worked, and Obama was able to use his pen and his phone, and it worked fine, but it kind of backfired because then the Republicans, when they took over, got rid of the filibuster for the Supreme Court, meaning you don't need 60 votes to have a vote. You only need to just go for the bare majority, and that's how they got Kavanaugh and Gorsuch in. So now the Democrats are saying, guess what? We are going to pass a law. First of all, get rid of the filibuster when when we run the Congress and the presidency. We're going to get rid of the filibuster. So all we need is a majority to add four members to the Supreme Court. It'll now be 13. And the new President Biden will appoint four justices. That'll reverse this idea of the conservatives dominating the judiciary for the next two or three decades. You see that happening? Yes, I do. I think... uh I think that this is something that is not just a scare tactic that um, the, the that the Democrats are trying to use to try to bully um, uh, Cory Gardner, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, and maybe even some others into not uh, you know into not uh, flip flopping and being uh, hypocritical against the, their explicit stances in 2016 um, uh, Gorsuch controversy. I think that is a this is a real threat. Uh, that the Democrats are actually going to follow through on because I, th- I think that the Democrats realize uh, that the Republicans have been much better, specifically uh, Mitch McConnell, have been much better about flexing the actual political power that they have and not leaving it on the table in the name of norms and uh, and politeness. And I think that uh, you know we've had we've had the Supreme Court that has been many different sizes over the years. We haven't had a uh, a change in the size of the Supreme Court in a while. Uh, but we've had seven or eight of them uh, over the course of the 1800s. Uh, the court fluctuated down, I believe, to either five or six people at its low point and up to either 10 or 11 at its high point. Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution that says how many justices there should be, so there's no good way to uh, point to that. Um, there's basically just the concept that you should probably have an odd number, I guess, because it would be a good idea to be able to break ties. Uh, but lots of, uh, like the... the the Circuit Court of Appeals uh, have tons of justices, and then they assemble a panel of a smaller subset of justices randomly. So, I mean, there's lots of different ways to organize justices and judges on, on panels, uh, and there's no reason uh, specifically why the, the Supreme Court should look the way that it does look right now. And, yeah, because uh, of the incredible number of judges that Mitch McConnell has put up and, and put in place, uh, there is a massive imbalance in the judiciary branch. And the Democrats are going to be really motivated to uh, push back against the post in the post-Trump era and actually make changes uh, that they see as being for the better um, to actually un, un, uh, un, unbalance uh, uh, Mitch McConnell's scales. All right, Connor, we've done it. We've totally evaluated the Ruth Bader Ginsburg situation. I uh, hope everybody's enjoyed it, and we will see you next week on Too Many Lawyers. Too Many Lawyers.